This is episode number three with Michael Hollinger. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McCandrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Hey everyone, welcome to the Ships Podcast. For today's episode, we have playwright Michael Hollinger in the house. I am very excited for this episode. Michael has been a mentor of mine throughout the past couple years. I went to graduate school at Villanova's theater program, for those of you who don't know. He's a professor there and was a great mentor to me during my time there. Michael Hollinger is a playwright whose plays include Under the Skin, Opus, Ghostwriter, Tooth and Claw, Red Herring, Incorruptible, An Empty Plate on the Café du Grand Bouff. I don't know if I said that right. And the musical Touch Tones, all of which premiered at Philadelphia's Art and Theater Company and have variously been produced around the U.S. and New York City and in various locations abroad. He's also had a variety of other plays premiered elsewhere, including Hope and Gravity, Cyrano, Sing the Body Electric, which premiered at Philadelphia's Theater Exile, and a musical called A Wonderful Noise. He has won various awards, including the ATCA Steinberg New Play Citation, an L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award, a Mid-Atlantic Emmy, four Barrymore Awards, nominations for Lucille Lortel and John Gassner Awards, and multiple fellowships from the Independence Foundation and Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. As I mentioned, he's a professor of theater at Villanova University, the artistic director of Villanova Theater, and a proud alumnus of New Dramatists. Safe to say, Michael has a lot of good stuff going on, and in our episode today, we talked a lot of great things. We talked about his process as a writer, what goes into creating characters and creating the complex relationships that are involved in a play. We also talk about the future of theater in our digital age and how companies, artistic directors, theater companies are creating theater in a new and innovative way. And we also talked about various experiences and relationships that he has had throughout his career that have helped shape his career into who he is today. There's a lot of great tidbits that I hope you can take away from this episode. So, a man who needs no introduction, Michael Hollinger. All right, welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Uh, today, we have Michael with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm uh, really excited. Michael uh, has been a, a mentor to me for uh, a few years now. I, I went to a Villanova University in their Masters of Theater program, and, and Michael is a professor of theater there. So I'm really excited to, to be chatting with you and having you on the podcast. 
Well, it's a lot of fun to continue the conversation, Pat, after all these years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll be diving into to some good things today, I'm sure. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from, where did you grow up, and, and what led you to where you're at today? Sure. Well, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, yeah, went to a public school. I studied music, which is important in my life journey, as you'll see. And uh, my parents did community theater at a very good local community theater. So theater was a big part of my family's life from when I was a kid. Uh, I acted with them. I did backstage work, uh, you know, built sets. So the experience of what it is to be uh, on stage, in an audience, backstage, working with the collective endeavor was very much part of my experience growing up. And I think that was an important thing for me too. I wound up studying uh, viola rather seriously and uh, became good at it. And it became my major at Oberlin College where I was in the conservatory of music. Uh, but despite the intensity of music study in a conservatory, I skipped a lot of practice hours by doing theater. So uh, most of these were with student theater groups, sketch comedy groups, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan group. Um, I did original plays and musicals and I wrote an original, uh, a pair of original one acts and finally an original musical, which I directed and which my collaborator music directed in my senior year at Oberlin. I expected to continue on as a violist, I uh, got a full ride to get an MFA in viola performance at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, wow. But I was, yeah, it was, it was a nice deal. <laughs> uh, but I was kind of burnt out after four years of music study and really wanted to take a year off. So I deferred that admission for a year and moved to Philadelphia with uh, my then girlfriend at, into a garage apartment behind one of my roommates' uh, houses. And, uh, just wanted to get a job and kind of live in the world for a year before I went back to school. Well, it only took a couple of months before I realized I didn't want to go back and study music anymore. It was uh, physically taxing. Viola's a, a largish instrument. Um, you got to practice a lot all the time. And uh, the most likely path for me would have been probably playing in an orchestra if, if I had been successful at it. And I really didn't care to do that. So I basically uh, employed myself in Philadelphia for a few years, including working for a children's theater company as an actor and eventually writing plays for them. And it was through that process where I kind of had a eureka moment that I was meant to go back to school and, and very clear that I wanted to be a playwright. Uh, at the time, uh, I was doing some tutoring for Villanova, uh, French tutoring, actually. <laughs> wow. I didn't know but, that you knew French. <laughs> I do. Oh, wow. Yeah. In fact, um, I lived my last year at Oberlin in the French house. So I was in pretty good shape um, after I graduated. And I started doing some tutoring at Villanova with Villanova students. And um, and there was a very good theater program I knew there, a, ma a master's program. Uh, and so 
I was kind of late in the game applying to places. I wound up getting an application into Villanova and to Yale School of Drama for grad school. And Yale turned me down and Villanova said, we'll pay your way. So I said, great, wow. Villanova it is. Um, and really that turn was just such a great uh, and lucky uh, occurrence because as a music student, even though I had done a lot of theater as a kid and later in, on in high school and in college, including writing my own things, I really was pretty deficient in terms of my literature and theory, the kind of the really the basics of theater history, theater criticism. And as you know, Villanova's program is very strong on those aspects, as well as on the notion of dramaturgy, which was utterly new to me at the time. So uh, the program was excellent for me in that uh, I was able to explore a lot of different areas that would be useful to me moving forward as a playwright, including scenography and directing, uh, voice and movement, and other things. I don't know that I would have studied all of that had I gone to an MFA program specifically devoted to playwriting. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very well-rounded education there for sure that um, at least I found that the, all the research, whether it be the theater history or the emphasis on dramaturgy really helps your artistic lens as well. Yeah, exactly. And for me, it actually became a career path because uh, when I graduated from Villanova and, and still didn't have exactly any idea how I would employ myself. <laughs> you know, this is familiar to theater people. You have lots of skills, uh, but you aren't exactly sure how the market is going to respond to the skill sets that you have. And uh, my mentor, Jim Christie, who was a professor here at the time, uh, tipped me off to a literary manager and dramaturg position at a theater in Philly called the Philadelphia Festival Theater for New Plays. And uh, I, I had gotten employed right out of Villanova as an actor in another touring children's theater company. So I was feeling a little bit like, am I just going to be riding around in a van my whole <laughs> life doing plays for kids? And then this position came up and I wasn't sure that I wanted to have an administrative position in a theater. The notion of working in an office for 40 or let's face it, 60 hours a week wasn't really appealing to me. But the artistic director that I interviewed with convinced me that this was a rare opportunity, that these jobs don't open up very often, uh, that I was well-equipped to do it, that she knew I was a playwright and said that I would be, you know, basically sitting out of, inside a theater that produced nothing but new plays. So I would be constantly reading new work and working on new plays. And so I accepted the job there and it was an incredible education for me because my literary office was basically like a filter for all the plays circulating in the United States that playwrights were submitting to theaters to be produced. So I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plays. And you can't read and evaluate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plays with, without exercising the muscle. What is theatrical? What is dramatic? What captures attention? And when does attention wander? Not to mention the very practical skills of what should a script look like in order to be readable? What should a cover letter look like in order to convey that you're a professional and not a crazy person? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, 
those sorts of things. And then I worked as a dramaturg with many playwrights working on their plays. So I was a consultant on their scripts and productions in process, consulting with directors. So those skills, those, those analytical skills, observing carefully, diagnosing and asking the basic questions. Is this interesting? Is this interesting? When do I get bored? What's more interesting than that? When am I riveted? When is it funny? Those questions, those muscles got really strong in that job. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you were able to then in turn ask those questions as you were working on your own work as well. Absolutely. I brought all of that home with me. Uh, so whereas, whereas one downside of being a literary manager is there's a lot of plays to read and they can easily bleed over into your after work life. You know, well, I'll take a couple scripts home. I'll read them on the train. I'll read them at home, you know, and I was very clear that I wanted to be writing my own. So I had to create a little bit of a firewall to the degree that I could so that my time would be time that I could write as well. But it's true, the perspective that I brought to the scripts I was working on and evaluating was extremely helpful to me. I think it advanced my understanding of the craft enormously, well beyond simply writing my own stuff. It also connected me to a national new play marketplace so that I was in conversation with other literary managers, with uh, artistic directors, with people who ran new play workshops. So it gave me an understanding of what is the network and the marketplace where new plays are circulating. And how important would you say was it that you were interacting with professionals in this space on a regular basis? Uh, I think it was absolutely essential. Um, every workplace has a culture and the way that people behave. If you're a professional musician going to gigs and working with other people, if you're a caterer, if you're a carpenter, uh, you know, every culture you go into uh, has its own set of rules, sometimes which are explicit, sometimes which are implicit, but you learn them. <laughs> if you don't learn them, you do so at your peril because people go, this person doesn't know how this works. If you're a theater person right. and you show up during a tech weekend um, and you don't expect to be busy for 12 to 14 solid hours, <laughs> <laughs> one, you're going to be surprised. And two, the people you work with will recognize that you have not assimilated the, the culture that you're interested in working in. So I learned how the new play system works. I learned how scripts are read and evaluated. I learned what these blueprints communicate to collaborators. I learned how rehearsals are scheduled and how people use them. I learned how script changes are communicated uh, on pages and with written in notes on pages. I learned how workshops go and how playwrights can use them well and the difference between workshop time and rehearsal time for production. Workshop time being a time where it's really about the playwright making the play better and production rehearsal time, which might have some time devoted to making the play better, but ultimately the thing's got to get on, on its feet and mounted and staged and lit and costumed. And so that is different. And so I, I do feel like talking with people, working with people, meeting lots of playwrights, dramaturgs, directors all around the country really during this period was extremely helpful for me. 
Yeah, and I imagine uh, it, it really provides that opportunity to gain insight into the logistical side of an artistic career. Um, because I feel like as artists, we always just want to focus on the art, whether it be writing, directing, acting, whatever it may be, uh, that it's easy to forget about all these uh, other logistics and really like the business side of things uh, that goes into a successful artistic career. Yeah, that's a great point. Um I don't think there's any field that where a holistic perspective of the field is as useful or essential as the theater. You know, in many fields, you can know how to do your thing and fit that cog into the larger machine and maybe not know how all the pieces fit together and you're fine. In the theater, it's incredibly advantageous to begin to understand, oh, here's what they're doing in the box office and here's what the marketing people are doing and here's what the production manager's doing and here's what the light board person's gonna be concerned with. You know, everybody's got their role, but the more you can understand the big picture, the more you can, one, employ yourself in that area if necessary, but two, create, kind and efficient and effective collaborations with all of these people because you're going to run into all of them. And uh, I, th I think my time in administration, well, it hasn't ended really because I, I, was, a, I was in arts administration for eight years before um, I finally left it and, and became a playwright and then an academic. But now at Villanova, again, I'm the artistic director of the theater here and have been overseeing uh, production now for uh, how long, uh, you know, about a dozen years. And I find like, that's one of the most satisfying things that I do, but it does take time to begin to understand how all the pieces work. Right. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, we're all playing a small part in a, in a much bigger picture, uh, like what you were saying and having an understanding of that bigger picture is definitely beneficial. Um, so my next question as, as a writer, uh, I, I find that it, it, I, or at least I imagine that it could be very, uh, solitary at times and oftentimes very lonely to a certain extent. Uh, so what exactly is your process with writing? How do you formulate characters? Does it happen through outlining a play or do you just sort of go to your computer or to the page and just start writing and see what happens? I'm a big fan of mess um, and a big believer that all creative process, whether you're a chef or an architect or a playwright or a songwriter, a dancer, that all healthy creative process begins with exploratory mess and ends with tidiness. So, you know, if it's, if it's, if you're a chef, you know, you want to be able to throw a lot of food around and experiment with a lot of things. And eventually it's gonna, all gonna lead up to you plating this meal beautifully on a plate so that when your uh, diner finally gets it, all they get is a beautiful aesthetic experience. <laughs> For me, that mess <laughs> yeah. looks like a variety of things. I try to attack a play from many angles at once because I don't know where the breakthroughs are gonna occur. So I will jot big picture thematic ideas. What am I interested in getting to the heart of? I will jot ideas about setting. I will take time to write 
uh, little miniature character bios or say, here's what I know about this character. I'll do lots of little, um, I call it fence posting, basically five to 10 line snippets where I'll say, I know there's going to be an encounter like this between these two people in my play. Let me just drop down into the heart of it so that I'm not worrying about the stage direction setting up the scene. I'm not worried about the exposition of how I got here. I might not even know these characters' names. I might call them A and B or boss and worker, right? So it's early enough that I, <laughs> yeah. I want to begin listening to the characters as they emerge. It's a little, um, you know, it, it, it might sound a little woofy to, to say like, you know, it's channeling characters' voices. But in a way, it really is that part, the part of my brain that is architectural, that thinks about planning out actions and plot and figuring out structure and thinking about theme, that's a fairly left brain and um, executive function part of the brain. So while it's extremely useful in the process, it also if, if left to its own devices and if it was the only part of my brain that I tapped, I think could lead to works that felt as though they were well-engineered, but perhaps not human and driven by human emotion, which we want to feel. So by allowing characters to talk, by sort of taking dictation, as it were, and diving in and just seeing what people say to each other in the line-by-line -line moment, um, I start to capture some of the unconscious stuff. I, I do believe that Walt Whitman's notion that we contain multitudes is absolutely true, that we walk through life as a fairly well-defined individual, which we rehearse daily, but that in fact, all human potentialities are part of us, and therefore we're able to imagine empathetically what other people are like if we listen carefully and pay attention. So the sort of free writing notion of dropping in and letting characters of different types collide with each other and, and figure stuff out as a way for me to get my left brain out of it, get my executive function out of it and say, what are these people doing? And, and that process is often quite surprising because I'll, characters will say things that I never anticipated that they would say and that, you know, metaphorically or occasionally literally knocked me off my chair where I thought, holy crap, I didn't know that about them. So I really <laughs> need that. And I think it's essential to a play. The engineering part is also essential, but uh, they need to work in tandem. Otherwise, you either have a big sloppy mess that's lively and human, or you have a, a very tidy but um, dry and perhaps intellectual thing. And I think that those two poles are really something that are constantly in flux. Right, right. It's, it's really fascinating. And, and I, I'm wondering, how, how do you navigate sort of these complex relationships of the characters that, that manifest in the play? Because, I mean, you, you, you're the person creating these characters, but I'm sure at some point it almost seems like they have a life on their own. So so how do you navigate this? And then also, how can that then be pulled out for real-life relationships? Wow, what a great question. Well, the tail end of that, let me save that, because that's a, that's a, a very profound question. Um, 
one one phenomenon that sometimes that actually often happens for me is I'll discover that a character that I'm who I think is the main character of my play sometimes is hard to make feel alive that I can I feel the playwright writing their lines and that's often because the character is important to me and therefore I have stuff I want them to say so they're burdened with my agenda as it were for the play uh and then along comes a secondary character perhaps you know a best friend or a coworker or something like that and this person just talks and they just go and somehow they leap off the page um with vibrancy and humor and they surprise me and i kind of you know sometimes feel like i need to put a damper on them <laughs> dude it's not your play <laughs> but um but of course it would be foolhardy to try to shut it down because that's where the life is so um you know basically what i try to do is how do i figure out how to channel the energy of this life force which has has suddenly shown up in my play um, and it's very exciting. And then how do I balance that out in this character who might feel a little bit two-dimensional, a little bit flat? So um, I do work at times if I'm struggling with a character feeling like they're not as dimensional as one that you know I stumbled on, I will ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I'll ask them to just talk. I will just take dictation and let the character talk. I'll ask questions uh, to create more biographical information about their background. I will try uh, messing with certain aspects of their demographics. So I'll say, well, wait, have I actually considered this person race or ethnicity? Might that be important? Have, have I assumed that this is a man and what if it were a woman? What if I changed their age? What if I changed, what if they were an immigrant? Um, so I'll, I'll just start modulating tiny little things to see does that alter something does that free up some aspect of my imagination that allows me to see them in a different perspective um your follow-up question um is a really big one and i know that you have a a, a long-standing interest in the notion of empathy uh, and connection with other people and i do feel like this is closely connected to our craft, first of all, because our the craft of theater in general, I think, is an empathetic one. We're constantly asked as audience members as well as, as makers to, to ask the question, sometimes unconsciously asking it, what does it feel like to be in those shoes? What would I do under those circumstances? Uh, and I do think that to write well, in the theater, you have to be incredibly empathetic. Um, easier said than done, but I, I found at times, to my surprise, that the characters who are farthest from my life experience sometimes emerge more vividly than the characters closest to my life experience. So an example is a, a play I wrote uh, in the early 2000s called Tooth and Claw is set in Galapagos and follows a scientist, uh, a woman who's down in Galapagos who's just taken charge of the Charles Darwin Research Station and is a tortoise expert. And uh, I entered the world of the play very much 
in line with this scientist. It's based on an actual woman who I traveled to meet and interviewed extensively. Um, she's well-educated. I'm well-educated. She's working for a nonprofit. I work for nonprofits. She spends long hours with high ideals, struggling to achieve a goal and often feeling like she's failing. And if that doesn't describe a career in the arts, I don't know what does. So I <laughs> really entered the play from her point of view. And then I began to people it with the people around her. Well, the, she's a North American Caucasian woman and she's entering a world, a South American world now peopled by uh, South American uh, native people uh, with uh, people of African heritage through the, through, uh, through Island culture, um, through Europeans, through the Spanish conquest. So like, Galapagos is a is a big stew of various cultures, races, and ethnicities together. And so I was curious on, you know, how is this woman, my character, with whom I identified heavily as a well-educated Caucasian male, how is she going to adapt in these circumstances? And what I discovered was that my understanding of the characters around her grew and expanded in many ways, more than her own character. She was burdened with being a protagonist in my play, and she had business to do. Whereas <laughs> her Ecuadorian secretary, who is in her 20s and six months pregnant when we start the play, to pregnant, we learn, to the former executive director of the Charles Darwin Research Station. Oh, wow. And, and pissed off about it. Um, and also uh, very devout. So uh, someone with a great deal of faith. So the notion that she would abort this child is unthinkable to her. Um, and rather dismissive of Darwinism uh, at the start of the play, because she doesn't really understand it particularly well, though she does come to understand it a little bit later on. I mean, this, this woman, this character, is pretty far away from me in just about every respect. And yet I discovered as I wrote this role that she emerged as the most vivid character in the play and the most, and I felt myself writing things in her voice that were deeply true for her and not deeply true for me. And yet somehow felt extremely authentic. And I think this is not just my uh, opinion because when I saw the play in productions uh, of which there were several, the character emerge it like pops out of the play as the most three-dimensional lifelike figure i don't know why that's true but i think it has something to do with our natural human ability to put ourselves in the shoes of other people uh, imaginatively and empathetically and that person doesn't need to be sitting across from us to do it Right, right. It's it's really this uh, sort of meta experience, and that actually leads me nicely uh, to my next question, which is what what is the experience like for you? Uh, obviously, plays are created to be performed. So, what is that experience like for you when you see one of your plays and you see the actors playing these characters that you've created? Yeah, it's. It's different depending on where I am in the process and how much time I've spent with the play and where, uh, and where it's going next. So, for example, um, 
two weekends ago, I was out in uh, a Chicago theater that had commissioned a play of mine and I had drafted the script a year prior and never heard it aloud. It's very rare for me that it would be so long between the first draft and a first hearing. But basically, this thing was a two-dimensional stack of pages for a year before I ever heard a word of it out loud. And so for me, in that workshop process, which was a, an action-packed four days, my sense of curiosity is just wildly intense. What does this play sound like? What are the rhythms like? What does this actor's voice sound like in this role? What's the story that I'm telling? What's the experience? What's the four-dimensional experience of this play or the promise of this play when fully produced? So that's a very different experience from, say, what will happen to me in two days when I drive down to a suburb of Washington, D.C., and see a play that I uh, began writing uh, more than 12 years ago and finally premiered uh, nearly 10 years ago uh, at the Arden. That play is published. I've seen a dozen productions. Uh, it's done. And it's been a couple of years since I've seen a production of it anywhere, a play called Ghostwriter. So when I go down to see that production, I'm curious, but in a different way. I'm not curious in a way that I'm just getting acquainted with something. I'm curious to see how does this thing hold up? With the passage of time, I feel a great degree of distance from the play, almost like somebody else wrote it. Like it's a play I'm really fond of, but <laughs> I didn't write it. Um, uh, that's yeah, interesting. What's nice is that my memory is actually not that great. So you know, I know I'm going to be surprised by lines and moments. I'm not going to have the script going through my head um, as a kind of scroll during the play. That actually does happen when a play is brand new and I've been through rehearsals a lot and I'm watching the play, you know, in its previews or opening night, I get the scroll of the script in front of my face, you know, in front of my mind. And it's very hard to shed it. I can't, it's hard to see the play as something that's not a script. But with the passage of time, that script disappears in my brain. So it, it allows me to see and experience what the play is in four dimensions in front of an audience with some distance. And that's kind of wonderful. I will say that because it's an interpretive art and it always requires collaborators to manifest it, unlike a novelist who basically says, here's the novel and once it's printed, it's done. Every production is going to be new and different and succeed to varying degrees. So I have attended productions of my plays that have been uh, disappointing to horrifying <laughs> um, because you don't have control <laughs> over it, especially if I haven't been involved in rehearsals uh, at all, that sometimes people make choices that are not in alignment with my wishes or intentions, or I think what I put on the page. And that can be pretty hard. Um, it's just part of the, part of the package. Right. I'm sure because the play then gets interpreted in a completely different way than I'm sure what you intentionally set out for. Yeah. And sometimes there are, I, I'm certainly pleasantly surprised by things and not infrequently, you know, seeing, 
certain moments or certain casting choices, certain design choices where I think, wow, I'd never imagined that. That's great. And then other times where the choices feel like they've ignored cues or clues that I've placed in the script and thought hmm, they were not doing their script analysis when they made that choice. And as a playwright, how, how do you figure out that balance of being like, okay, this is my play. I created this from, uh, you know, from nothing to, okay, now it's, it's in someone else's hands and it, they'll do what they want with it. And now I, I have, uh, you know, not that much agency over it. Like what's that? Yeah. If it's a, yeah, it depends on where the play is in its process for a world premiere. Uh, I'm very closely involved in the production, particularly if the play is premiering in Philadelphia and I have access to the cast and the director and the designers and can attend rehearsal whenever I want. Um, so I tend to be fairly closely involved, but I recognize that my hands aren't on the steering wheel of the production, nor should they be. I'm a, I should be a, a vocal uh, passenger in the front seat <laughs> and I'll have a lot of opinions about, you know, whether the radio should be louder or softer, or whether we should turn left or right, but I don't have my hands on the steering wheel. Uh, sometimes that can be tricky. If I'm working with a director that I know well, who knows me well, uh, we can often take shortcuts and be quite rigorous with each other in terms of them giving me notes about the play and me giving them notes about everything from staging to a costume choice uh, to a, you know, to a sound cue. And I will give those notes fully. Um, but it's, it's sometimes I have to bite my tongue and sometimes I realize I should have bitten my tongue because I'll have opinions about things and, you know, there needs to be room for the other collaborators to do their job. Um, with the plays that, um, I'm not involved in or say, you know, it's a fifth production of, of a play and I'm going out to visit with the cast once and then I'll come to one performance during the run. I, at some point, I realize that I have to let go of this, that, that uh, the play deserves, I mean, if I'm lucky, the play will have many incarnations and some of those will be better and some of those will be weaker, but that's kind of a successful experiment. If you create a really good recipe for cheesecake, every one of those cheesecakes shouldn't be identical. What you should have created is the basis for many people making cheesecake in slightly different ways and, and satisfying many different cheesecake eaters, right? You don't, I don't want to make every right, damn right. cheesecake, nor can I. I want, what I want to do is feel <laughs> yeah. as though I've crafted the recipe very well so that if someone pays attention to it, they can put their own spin on it and still have it be a successful experience. And that's, that's healthy. That's part of attachment and letting go, both of which are stages, I think, of the creative process. Utter attachment while creating and utter identification with the product while you're creating and then detachment at some point and saying, you know what? It's done now. For me, that's mostly once the play is published because I can't really change it anymore. The script travels without me and 
if I got it into the play, it means my collaborators got it. If I didn't get it into the play, oh well, <laughs> you know, I don't get a vote anymore because I thought, if I thought it yeah. and I didn't put it in, well, who cares? Because I'm going to be gone someday anyway. <laughs> they're not going to be able to ask <laughs> me. Yeah, it's it, that's certainly an uh, interesting perspective to take for sure. Um, so, so we live in an age where we're very hyper connected uh, digitally, um, uh, always on our screens, always online. It's become such a central part of the way that we live our daily lives. So, with that said, why is uh, it still important to write plays today? It's probably more important. Uh, I mean, I don't know that the writing of them is important. Um, I, I think the attending of uh, collective experiences where we share space with other people and share emotional experiences. So live theater, I think, is uniquely good at that, at generating an empathetic response in a body of people because we are live as we watch it and the people in front of us are live. So there's an interchange that we don't get, say, from film. Um, to be fair, we have enough plays in the world. Nobody ever needs to write another play and we could program theater seasons forever. But uh, I think playwrights need to write plays. I know I do. And I do believe that audiences are interested in hearing their times and experiences reflected back at them so they can chew on them. Um, so it is an interesting time now because the marketplace for dramatic writing has really exploded with the rise of the of cable television, subscriber television, you know, uh, and now organizations like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon that are creating original content. Just this an incredible desire to create dramatic stories that will be of interest to people. I'm, you know, I'm a, a middle-aged guy who has only a passing uh, experience with other media in terms of screenwriting. Uh, so I'm not deeply enmeshed in it. I think if I were a younger person, I'd probably be more aggressive about seeking to do so because I do think these dramatic forms have a lot of similarities to them. But I think that the theater is a place as I said, where because of its immediacy, because we see things together uh, nonstop, there's no pause button, um, and with live actors in front of us, that, that that conjures something in our hearts and in our bodies that is not replicable through digital means. As much as I like watching Game of Thrones, um, Oh yeah, that's coming out it soon is, too. It is. It? I pay a lot of attention to it. I mean, there's a lot of things I love to watch on the screen and you can't beat the convenience of it. But I do think for the same reasons, for, for, the, for similar reasons to why people have attended churches for millennia, the notion of human uh, community together sharing an experience, I think that live theater will never be irrelevant and may in, in some ways be more necessary as a counterweight to the disembodiment of our digital culture.
Right, right. There, there's something that's very, or that feels very tangible and authentic when it comes to theater. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's because, like you said, there's an audience live with uh, live performers, um, and uh, yeah, there's there's just something like tangible about that. Yeah, and, and the tricky part is that it's expensive and time consuming, and you know our our cultural marketplace has increasingly been able to lower cost, increase quality and increase access so that we can get excellent quality for low cost in our pajamas within 20 seconds. That's hard to compete with. So getting people out of their house to pay much more money for, you know, a gamble on quality, and to devote a great deal more time to an experience that you can't put on pause, you know, or finish watching over lunch. It's asking quite a lot of audience. And I don't know that there's a way to simplify that. We can't really make theater cheaper. It's about as cheap as it can get. Uh, we <laughs> yeah. we kind of can't make it more convenient. Uh, and the quality, we're always trying to make it good. But I think we need to continue to make experiences that remind people these are experiences that are not replicable through streaming. Right, right. That it's um, a completely different medium in, in so many ways, mm -hmm. even though you're still experiencing a story of some kind. Yeah. So with creating plays, we were talking a bit earlier about um, the, the relationships between characters and how those relationships are created and managed. I, I'm wondering, what was a specific relationship that you've had, whether personal or professional, that had a profound impact on your life? And, and why was this the case? And, and did it really inspire any of the work that you've created? Uh, specifically, an artistic experience or a, a uh, any life experience or theater? Uh, I think I think either either or. Um, wow, what an excellent question. Um, pinpointing a, a experience would be hard. Certainly, um, I remember one of my earliest experiences being enlivened by the theater was watching a high school production of Oklahoma and, you know, a moment like watching Curly sit on a, a prop stove um, and have another character say, you know, that stove is hot and having the actor jump up because he just burned his butt. I remember like just thinking how, wonderful and hysterical that was because <laughs> you know you're watching this fake world and you see a, a fake stove on stage and somebody sits on the fake somebody pretending to be somebody else sits on the fake stove and they're told that it's hot and suddenly they burn their butt like that i felt like the ability of the experience i mean i didn't i didn't know what this was intellectually in my mind i'm analyzing it now but i think it's the fact that someone can manipulate your imagination and make you see things and feel things from such a great distance was just fascinating to me early on. And I wanted to figure out what the mechanics of that were. Um, I think in, uh, 
as I got out of college and began seeing more theater, I caught some things on Broadway um, in my early 20s. For example, Lily Tomlin's Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which just blew my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, that one person could create a, you know, a dozen or two dozen characters with nothing but her body and voice and, uh, and virtually no set. But also the fact that at the very end of the play, the, the play draws the audience's attention to itself. It recognizes that here we are, a group of people in a room together, sharing breath, facing the same direction, and sharing this experience. And I'd never seen anything that did that before. I'd, I'd certainly seen lots of things that, were, that moved or amused me, but watching something that made the experience of the audience uh, present to itself was a huge impact on me. And it's something that I've tried to make happen in some of my plays as well. So for example, at the end of my play Opus, which deals with str a string quartet that's kind of imploding, at the very end, there's a character who's uh, doing a monologue that we have come to understand in the play. These monologues are actually uh, interviews as part of a documentary. And this guy in the string quartet is imagining the ideal, the, the ideal way that his string quartet will end. And we've already seen them explode. We know they're doomed, but he doesn't know because his, his interviews from a documentary that was recorded earlier. So he's imagining how they might end. And he imagines that they'll all die together in exactly the same moment on stage playing a string quartet, <laughs> you know, that they'll get to a rest in the music. They'll be playing this perfect Beethoven Opus 59, number three um, string quartet, and they'll come to a rest in the music. And, and, and that's, that'll be the moment where they all die. And he, he ends the play saying, uh, quoting Hamlet, though he, he doesn't really know literature very well, so he can't quite place the quote, but he says, didn't somebody say that the rest is silence? You know, you play your part the best you can till you run out of notes and the rest is, and he doesn't, say the word silence, he kind of gestures into space. And of course, all of the audience is sitting there in silence, in the absence of the word that he says, recognizing that the play has run out of notes. And here we are together in the silence. Um, so it's not as overt as the Lily Tomlin is, but that notion of how do we draw attention to the fact that we're sharing a moment is... Yeah a very spiritual idea and one that's that was important to me there and i've i've strived to achieve it in various ways in other plays as well right right it, it really is it's a fascinating thing that um i feel like our society doesn't put enough value on of of sharing mm -hmm. sharing an experience or a moment together it's yeah, yeah i i think when you talk about like our you know, in this discussion of our digital world now and why theater matters or is important, I think 
a lot of playwrights and theater producers are beginning to think more deeply about that. Not like there's this proscenium over there at the end of that room and a thing goes on and I'll watch it from this end of the room, but experiences that are more interactive, experiences that are more event-like, experiences that would be different if I weren't here watching them. Um, one that I saw uh, this past fall uh, actually with the solo performance class here at Villanova is a play called Every Brilliant Thing um, by Duncan McMillan. And uh, every single, uh, many members of the audience are handed a little card when they come in, a little three by five card that has a number on it and a word or a small phrase or a list. And the performer over the course of the play will say number 17 and that person says what's on their card. It sounds huh. a little gimmicky to describe it, here, but it's an incredibly moving experience. And the notion that the collective body of the audience is to some degree essential uh, and utterly interactive with the performer is thrilling and makes you realize that's not a thing I'm going to get from Netflix. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, think theater is going to be thinking more and more in that way. And uh, there will be gimmicky solutions to it that are, you know, superficial. And there will be profound ways that playwrights and directors, theater makers will discover to say this event, this being present together in this space is something that will not be found elsewhere. I think, I think that's going to be essential. Yes. It's so important. I love this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So when it comes to theater, uh, at least in my opinion, relationships are, are such an uh, integral part, um, whether it's the relationship between the performer and the audience, performers in the audience, or, or between the characters on stage. Um, so when you think of a, a genuine, deep, meaningful human relationship, what comes to mind? <laughs> Um, well, I've been married now for 28 years. <laughs> Congratulations. So, thank you. That's certainly one. Um, and probably the most profound because if you're in a marriage long enough and it is successful, um, you move through a lot of things with, by yourself as an individual, you're changing over decades, but, uh, who you are to each other is constantly changing and, and the values you hold are changing. So, you know, going from the first heart palpitations of romantic and sexual love and infatuation um, into creating, you know, an entity called we are a couple, <laughs> which can become, you know, we are a couple under the eyes of the law. And because we purchased real estate and, then we are the caretakers of these young creatures that we've made <laughs> who are themselves separate entities and require a lot of, a lot of service and love. And, uh, and, you know, the project of a relationship over the course of decades. So, I mean, that's continually evolving. And I think um, for me, the best daily education and what does it mean to be a human being in relationship with other people? Because I need to think about who is this person who shares my bed and my life and who presumably who has made a bargain with me that one of us will shut the other's eyes at the end of our life. I mean, like wow. that's, wow. that's, that's not a tiny thing. Um, 
So, I mean, that's a, that's a rather profound one. But I also think that, that say, my marriage or a marriage in general is practice for how do you how do you open your heart to the possibility of what another person is? We're very, um, you know, it is efficient for us as human beings to go through life and to, you know, the person who makes my sandwich at the deli is the guy who makes my sandwich at the deli. That's all he needs to be for me. Cause I want my sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, um, and the person uh, who lives down the street from me with a political sign for a candidate I don't approve of um, is now my political enemy. So it is a convenience for us as human beings to be able to pigeonhole because it helps us sort stuff. And sorting stuff is one of the things we do well and that we have to do well to, to survive in a modern world. But the sorting process destroys our humanity because we cease to recognize the humanity of people that who either we only see as how they function and serve us or how they are opposed to us. And therefore I should treat them with suspicion or, you know, opposition. So, so coming back to marriage in a way, marriage is a way of saying never take for granted or an invitation to never take for granted a person who you think, you know, or have plumbed the depths of, because you never have and you never will. And, and it's a reminder to be open to the possibility of the person directly in front of you. That the, the sandwich maker has an entire life inside them. And so, you know, returning to your very, very early questions, Pat, about character making, that's all part of the same um, process, I think, which is it takes imagination it takes empathetic imagination both to create a character in a play and also to interact with another human being yeah. in the world. Wow. Wow. This my mind's like blown right now. It's just a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of really uh, profound things that you're saying that really uh, make me and hopefully our, our listeners as well, just think about uh, really the importance of our interactions in our in our daily lives and and the whole the, the varying degrees of what what different relationships or or interactions mean um it's fascinating it is fascinating you could spend your whole life yeah. <laughs> your whole life trying oh to yeah do yeah this. that's why we have philosophers right or yeah. or, or playwrights yeah. Well, fortunately, <laughs> yeah i mean i think what's nice is that like uh being a human being and trying to live in the world with other human beings is excellent practice for being a playwright and being a playwright and trying to imagine encounters between people, none of whom are exactly you is good practice for being a human being. They feed each other, which yeah. is nice. Well, Michael, thank you so much for uh, hopping on this podcast today. It was really great chatting with you. Uh, before we uh, head off, uh, I'm wondering if, if there's a, a certain website or platform where our listeners could learn more about you. I'm, uh, I am ill-connected in the world. I do have a website, which is easy to remember. It's michaelhollinger.com. Uh, it is years out of date at the moment because I'm I'm very slow to put myself online, so I haven't touched it in a while. Um, but there's always plays of mine that are going on. 
Uh, my publisher, Dramatist Play Service, has a website, dramatist.com. And if you search on that site for uh, a list of current productions, you can find out where my plays are getting done at various places. And uh, hopefully there will be more and, and more and elsewhere. Awesome. Soon. Do you have any upcoming projects currently in the works? Uh, yeah, I don't have anything. I mean, people are doing my published plays at various places around the country or even abroad, which is nice. But I'm working on this play that I just workshopped out in Chicago, uh, which uh, was commissioned by the theater, Northlight Theater in Skokie. Uh, and my hope is that they'll premiere that next year uh, in the fall of 2020. Uh, but I still need to wait and see if they're going to uh, exercise that option. I just drafted another new play. I'm working on a musical. Uh, that'll take a few more years to get together. So there's always a couple pans on the stovetop that I'm advancing. Awesome. So yeah, for you listeners out there, stay tuned for what's <laughs> coming next. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining us again. And it, it was really great catching up with you. It was great to talk with you, Pat. All the best. There you have it, everyone. Michael Hollinger sharing his words of wisdom with us all. Like I said, there were a lot of great tidbits of information in that interview, and I'm so happy that he was able to come on the show and, and share his experience and his perspective, not only on theater and on playwriting, but also on relationships and the world in general. If you really liked this episode, please share it with your friends. Or if you'd like to call in and comment on the episode, all you have to do is download the Anchor app and then you can share what you would like through voice. And if you're lucky, depending on what you say in your message, I might even publish these voice messages on a future episode. So feel free to call in, leave me a message if you'd like. So that's our episode with Michael Hollinger. Please stay tuned for the next.